The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk to Ira Jersey here, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist. Um, Ira, I just saw oh, thank um, God. Michael McKee leaving here. He's going to hop on the Acela train, get down to Washington, D.C. for that Fed meeting tomorrow, where he can heckle the, the chairman with some questions. What do you want to hear from Fed Chairman Jay Powell tomorrow uh, after the release of uh, the results there? Well, what I'd like to hear and what we're not going to hear is okay. going to wind up being what's the Fed's reaction function and for uh, when they might cut or raise interest rates. Obviously, if inflation accelerates meaningfully, um, they'll raise interest rates again. They've already you know, mentioned that, that they might have to do more. Uh, if inflation does accelerate, although we got some data today that seems like maybe it is going to moderate a little bit. Um, but really, you know, what will it take for them to cut? And I think that the, the idea that they're going to remain at the peak for some time, which they've hounded on, uh, it would be helpful for them, I think, to basically be a little bit more explicit. Like, look, we're not cutting unless the unemployment rate is, you know, three, four percentage points higher than where it is and inflation is close to our target, right? So saying something like that, which isn't completely explicit, is, but it, it still has some, uh, some meaning around it for markets. I think that that would be helpful for, uh, for, for the Fed to, to maintain monetary policy at this pace. Close to our target while. is weak talk. Weak talk? <laughs> weak sauce, <laughs> right? I mean, do you want a hawkish? Why don't they say, like, we want to get to 2% to our target, you know, I mean, at least for six months or a year, I mean, Weren't they trying to average, long-term average 2%? And well, how many was, decades yeah, that would that take? <laughs> yeah, well, that was their old framework. It wouldn't take, no, it wouldn't take that long. Um, because remember, we were at on, under 2%, at least for, for quite a while uh, in the last decade. Um, I, I think the, 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 the thing for the Fed, though, is that if, look, if inflation is 2.7%, 2.6%, 2.5%, trending lower, and you had a real spike in unemployment, then everyone would be forecasting inflation to be significantly lower, right? And I think that's the reason why they can say, like, near our target or approaching our target, right, something like that. So, so the, the Fed doesn't like to be as explicit as saying, look, we will cut interest rates if the unemployment rate is above 5% and uh, and uh, inflation is at 2%. If They won't be as explicit as that because they want to leave themselves flexibility in case there's a, a crisis, if there's you know massive corporate defaults, for example, and unemployment spikes, but you still have uh, you know year-over-year inflation hasn't fallen off a cliff yet. Um, they, they always want to leave some of that flexibility. Um, but you know th- what's interesting about the Fed is it's that, that little minutia and detail that's going to matter because the Fed's probably not going to do anything tomorrow. Um, the Treasury Department, though, at 8.30 in the morning is going to give us some information that might actually be market moving. So, yeah, I mean, yesterday we heard from, um, I guess, Treasury that they need about, what, $800 billion in this quarter? 
776 billion right, yep. in this quarter of, of net uh, uh, of net debt raise uh, effectively. Um, that, that's a little bit higher than what our expectation was. A little bit lower than most. Uh, expectations and the, the reason is is that they want to keep this pretty big cash balance they want to keep a cash balance uh, of around 750 billion dollars so in order to do that with social security payments coming and um, uh, additional uh, uh, additional payments for Medicare as well as just uh, just general government deficits uh, not to mention interest payments on the debt um, they're gonna have to raise uh, you know quite a lot of money now interestingly remember that 776 billion dollars is what they're selling to the public it, it's actually not the total debt that's being raised because there's non-marketable debt so debt from the Social Security Trust Fund and some other trust funds that are being paid down. So what you'll see is a deficit for the quarter of around half a uh, half a trillion dollars, around five hundred billion dollars. Um, but you'll but but the actual debt that they need to raise is much more than that because mm -hmm. of the things that we've known for thirty years, right? The Social Security Trust Fund is uh, is a is a net negative, and that has to be funded out of uh, uh, out of general revenue. So it's it's you know it's all the problems that we've seen over the last twenty five years, and and we said we're going to be problems for the government debt are actually coming home to roost right so now. So I write, I mean. Nobody likes to ignore treasury auctions more than me, but you tell me I now have to pay attention to this? Well, they've been important. They've been market moving events. Uh, when you look at uh, auction demand the last, uh, the last couple of weeks, they've, they've started to slip a little bit on, on, on average. Um, we, last week, for example, we had pretty weak uh, auctions for two-year debt and five-year notes, but the seven-year on Thursday went okay. Uh, but I would say that demand is much more mixed. Prior to this past month or so, we actually had pretty decent demand at auctions. People were, I think, were taking advantage of the sell-off. We, you know, hit five percent on ten-year notes, and people had, um, you know, taking a little stab at maybe uh, owning a little bit more at auction. Um, so yeah, we need to see if if demand is maintained, particularly since tomorrow morning, with all of that seven hundred billion dollars of debt that needs to be raised, um, there's going to have to uh, the the government's going to have to increase the size of auctions almost across the board. So I'm looking at the two tens. Um, that's another thing you got me looking at. Unfortunately, uh, st still inverted, but you know much less than it was before. Now only about you know 20 basis points or so. Are we going to get to a point where we actually have longer-term yields higher than shorter-term yields? Yeah, I, I think we I think we will, and it will probably happen early next year. Um, it, I think it really depends, though. The, the important nuance of that is, is it because two-year yields go down a lot? Um, so do we have a, a weakening economy? Is Anna Wong and the Bloomberg economics team correct? And uh, if we do have a, um, a meaningful slowdown in the economy, we could probably see two-year yields go down you know, 25, 50 basis points, and 10-year yields go down less than that. And that, that's how you wind up getting that positively sloped yield curve. Uh, on the other side, if the, if the economy stays reasonably robust, but only because we have all of this debt issuance, um, you could see you know 10-year yields maybe up above 5%, up to 5.25, uh, 5.3%, and that could uh, you know uninvert the yield curve, and, and that would not surprise me at all. In fact, um, I we actually think that we we are in the process of completely uninverting, uh, and we do expect to see a positively sloped yield curve sometime over the next 12 months. You raise an interesting point that. Um uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen last week, she said the reason we have high yields is not to do with the debt and deficits, nothing to do with that. Look away from there. Don't look there. Um, <laughs> it's because of the strength of the economy, because of Bidenomics from the middle out, from the, what is it? Middle out and I can't remember. Belly, you mean? 
He says he has a catchphrase that he uses. Um, bottom up and middle out. That's what go. it is. Uh, so is that the case? And, and will we know from, you know, the refunding how much of the rise in yields is due to, uh, um, you know, the high debt and deficits and how much of it is due to the speeding economy? Yeah, these are only things that can be estimated, but our estimate is that around 92% of the move from the July uh, Fed meeting to present in the 10-year yield has been due to the shift in Fed expectations. And so, so if you go and you look at what the expectation is that the market's been pricing, we were pricing for 2.5% Fed funds rate in 2025. We're now pricing for 4% in 2025. So that's a huge move, right? I'm talking about a 150 basis point move up in, in where the Fed is going to cut to or, or you know, where the market thinks it's going to cut to. So that had to manifest itself all throughout the Treasury curve and in particular in the longer end because the longer end was anticipating rates to be much lower and policy rates to be much lower a right. few years from now. So, so I, I think, I think the, the, the debt dynamics have, do have some effect yep. and they certainly have effect on liquidity. But All right, I forgot really to just leave it fed, there, yeah. but we appreciate that. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Caterpillar, uh, they make the big tractors and all that kind of good stuff, backhoes. Uh, they reported some numbers today, which were in line, I guess pretty solid, but it's all about the outlook for these long cycle industrial companies. And that's what's got some investors spooked here. As John mentioned, the stock's down about 5% here today. Let's break it down with uh, the man who knows what's happening with these, this company, Chris Cialino. He covers the big industrial companies for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's located down in Princeton, New Jersey. The HQ, if you will, of a Bloomberg Intelligence. Hey, Chris, talk to us about uh, um, Caterpillar. You've been calling out, I know, in the last you know few quarters we've been speaking to you about, boy, these companies are putting up great numbers, but investors are really looking forward and they're a little bit concerned. That seemed to come to fruition here today. What'd you see? Yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, the quarter was fine. It actually was quite good um, with better than expected margin performance and earnings. Um, you know, pricing continues to be really strong. But what we saw was a, a pretty broad deterioration when it comes to their leading indicators. You know, backlog fell for the first time in three years. Uh, implied orders also wow. dropped sequentially in year over year. And their fourth quarter sales outlook was somewhat kind of disappointing uh, and below normal seasonality and consensus. And there was a fair amount of um, trepidation about the macro backdrop heading into the print. And I, I think these softer orders and backlog trends that we saw aren't necessarily uh, encouraging um, and what is likely to be a, a softer economic environment next year and really just kind of intensify some of those concerns around the duration of the cycle. Yeah, so we saw the year-on-year -year decline of... $1.9 billion in the backlog. What exactly does that mean? Does that mean, um, you know, exactly what I think it does, that they had <laughs> uh, orders that were that much lower? I mean, how much were there, was the backlog in total? Yeah, so I would say the moderation in the backlog 
wasn't necessarily a surprise, and I think it was somewhat to be expected, just given normalizing supply chains and and some of the the lead time shrinking with some of the product availability. But I think the magnitude of the decline was kind of what spooked people, particularly on the order front. Orders were down about 15% versus the prior year and 20% sequentially. So I, I think that sheer magnitude and just the optics of but the- But what's the magnitude uh, of the, like, is a $1.9 billion drop a 10% drop in the backlog or is it a 50% drop in the backlog? No, it's it's an 8.5% decline sequentially. So oh. <laughs> uh, while not a, but it's the first time we've seen, Backlogs essentially peaked. This is the first time. Ah, we've sequentially. Seen so you're not talking about the year over years. year drop. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. That's. Right. I can see how that would spook people. Uh, what's Kat saying about like which? Are there any particular customer segments that are maybe weaker than expected? Um, what are they saying about kind of where this might be coming from? Yeah, I think. Um, I'll actually maybe start on the construction side. I think that was one positive surprise, particularly in North America. North America continues to be quite resilient, um, and end user demand continues to be pretty strong, really across their business. Uh, the the energy and transportation business came in a little bit weaker than we had anticipated, um, and it's some there was some softness on the mining side on the top line. It seems to be some timing issues, but also there was some weakness in the aftermarket business, which was a little surprising just given the age of the fleet and utilization still remains quite high. So those bear kind of watching going forward here. So it, it, give us a sense of a cycle here for like a, a caterpillar. Um, I mean, you said this is the first time in three years they've had down orders sequentially. That sounds like a pretty good cycle, but is it, are down cycles similarly like in length? No, uh, as much as we like to think every cycle is the same, they tend to be different. And I would say, um, you know, even though backlog had peaked here, uh, you know, we are still at historically very elevated levels and there is really above average production visibility as we look forward to next year. Um, but the optics are, I mean, you have a really a, a cyclical company with declining orders, a declining backlog. Um, it, it doesn't just the optics of that are not a favorable setup for the company moving the, into next year. How about the Inflation Reduction Act? Isn't that like lots of caterpillar type stuff you need? So it is. Um, and I guess one of the, the caveats with this cycle is it's different because we just have an immense amount of fiscal stimulus coming through the pipe. Um, and I'd say a lot of that has really kind of yet to materialize into the to the financial results of a lot of these companies. And it's part of what's propping up the backlog here. So I think that does help provide an offset. I, I think some of the decline is certainly attributable to these the normalizing supply chain and, and shrinking lead time. So uh, maybe a little bit of an overreaction, but um, yeah, this will certainly provide a, a multi-year tailwind for the company and really probably provides a little bit more of a favorable outlook for a lot of the construction machinery producers relative to some of the other machinery and markets. What are the biggest competitors and do they face a threat there? I mean, I look through all the names on the RV page on the Bloomberg and I don't see anything that really stands out as, you know, uh, a household name other than maybe Mitsubishi. Uh, but, you know, who, who, who are they facing off against? Yeah, so I mean, they're the, the undisputed leader in the construction machinery space. Um, when it comes to mining, it's essentially a duopoly with them and Komatsu. And, and Komatsu is a, a pretty significant player on the construction side as well. Everyone else tends to be subscale. They do compete with Deere also on construction. They've, they're starting to grow their um, construction business. So I would expect them to be a more formidable competitor in the years to come. But really, it, it's, it's Kat and Komatsu. Those are the, the, the dominant forces in the market. 
How about geographies, uh, Chris, um, particularly China? I'm not, what's their exposure to China and what are they saying about China? China's weak and continues to weaken. Um, really no signs of uh, a turnaround yet. So, you know, historically, China's been roughly 10 to 10, 5 to 10 percent of consolidated sales at Caterpillar. This year, we're going to be well below the 5 percent mm. uh, and the lowest in quite some time, not really hearing any sort of optimism coming out of that region. And how about Europe? Because I know I can see here on the PGEO page, that's uh, EAME is about 20% of revenue. Um, What are they seeing out of Europe? Because I know people are concerned about that, uh, those economies over there. Yeah, and you know what, that actually held up a little better than I had anticipated. We're, we're just starting to hear this earnings season from a number, number of other machinery producers that um, there had been some weakening in the sentiment over in Europe and even some softer orders. Didn't really get that coming out of CAT um, and, and some of their retail sales trends um, didn't seem to suggest a, a significant deterioration there yet. So again, another item worth kind of monitoring moving forward. We just saw the Eurostat uh, growth figures, by the way, Paul. Yeah. So the European economy contracted 0.1% oh, in uh, the third quarter, and we were looking for just a stagnation. So okay. it's getting smaller there. I guess consumer prices are coming down, which is good. They got yep. a two handle on them, 2.9% oh, really? in October. That's, okay. Yeah. Hey, um, Chris, just looking ahead a little bit, uh, my good friends at John Deere, the nice green tractors, are reporting in a, in a few weeks here. And, you know, I always love to look at the Deere results because it gives you a great handle on kind of how the state of the, the farmer out there. How are things at Deere? So I think Deere is going to have uh, a more challenging setup into 2024 relative to CAT. Um, we think the ag market has already peaked. So we're kind of anticipating mid uh, digit volume declines next year. Uh, now, remember, Deere will report their fiscal 4Q results later in November. So they'll provide the kind of first look at 2024, but we're certainly expecting a lower volume market on the ag side. We're coming off a number of strong years, um, but you're starting to see commodity prices, uh, real crops often quite a bit. Farmer income is going to be down 25% this year. So Really, um, I'd say a less favorable outlook on the ag side uh, in 2024. And the farmer, I mean, when the farmer has cash, he or she goes out and buys tractors and stuff like that. But it's the, it's a cyclical business, so the flip side is true, right? Yeah, and you know, I the the the, the magnitude sound pretty draconian, but I think we'll still be, you know, second or third highest uh, all time in terms of net farm income. So um, we'll we'll be down from a peak in 2022. Um, It's still going to be historically strong, but I I would just expect farmers to dial back some of the spending just given what's going on um, uh, with some of the farm fundamentals and and again, the, the weaker crop prices that we've seen. All right, great stuff. I'm just looking at deer right now. The stock's uh, off about 15% year to date. So there's the market discounting a good 12 to 18 months in the future um, on that name. Chris Cialino, uh, we always appreciate getting a few minutes of his time. He's the industrials analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Looking at INGO, that is the Bloomberg Index browser. Kind of gives you the performance year to date, month to date of all the big indexes out there. And for the fixed income space in the U.S., it is red with one exception. 
U.S. corporate high yield up 4.38%. Why is that? Let's check in with our next guest, Ken Monahan, co-director of high yield at Amundi U.S. He's based in Durham, North Carolina, uh, but up here in New York. Ken, 2022, as we've talked about before, was the mother of all disasters for fixed income investors. This year's not much better uh, through the first you know, nine, 10 months. What's going on in the corporate high yield market? Why is that showing some positive returns? Well, you're right, Paul. I think this, it's, it's been a reasonable year considering how bad we've, we've had it in the past. <clears throat> and I, it, it's, a, it's a decent year, and it's a year where risk is outperformed. Um, now, October thus far is has been miserable for risk, but if you're looking at the year to date, um, you know we see uh, the triple C credits are up, you know, really about threefold what uh, what double Bs are. So we've had a fair amount of spread compression. So, but I mean, everybody's been telling Matt and I that we're going to have a recession any day now. If that's the case, why are people taking incremental risks that they need to that they do when With they go tight to the spreads. I mean, if you're paying me, I get it. But if you're not paying me, why am I buying it? Well, if you look at spreads where they are right now, you know, arguably they're only at the five and ten year averages, <clears throat> so they're not looking particularly cheap. Um, on the other hand, that uh, the economy has done pretty well, and I think that that's really what's been driving spreads. Is you know we'd all been waiting or expecting a, a recession, whether it was in the later half of the back, early part of the first half of the year, or then the back half of this year, and then people are forecasting it for early 2024. And thus far, the economy has continued to power through, and I think that's what's been driving spreads. But aren't you worried that defaults are going to start to pick up? Well, interestingly enough, if you look at the Moody's estimates, they're expecting defaults will peak sometime in the spring of next year, but at a fairly reasonable rate. But let's remember, when Moody's puts out its numbers, it is an unweighted number. So they count a $100 million default the same way they count a billion-dollar default. If you look at it on a adjusted basis where they're using weightings based on the amount of debt outstanding, the default rate for this year is still running under 2%. Um, now, they're expecting the default rate to rise into the mid to high fours, uh, but that's a pretty big differential. So what it tells us is the companies that are getting into more difficulty tend to be smaller companies rather than larger ones at this point. What's the new issue market like? I used to love throwing out some high yield for my clients uh, back in the day because uh, I love the media cable paper what's the what's the new issue market like these days it's pretty soft right yeah. now not surprisingly i think we had a pretty robust calendar coming into september and that there were a number of companies that had financings whether it was m&a related or lbo related that needed to get done and they got those done but since then obviously treasuries have risen fairly dramatically yep. and then on the back of the 50 beeps treasury move we've had uh in the last four or five weeks we've had about a 75 basis point widening of high yield so i think companies have taken a step back and said, let's wait a minute here. Let's hope that spreads get tighter or hope the treasury rates come down and moderate and we'll find a better financing opportunity. Now, the problem with that from our perspective is if you wait too long and we are right and we do see more of an economic slowdown in 2024, which is what our expectation is, that would imply, as you're suggesting, that spreads ought to be wider, not tighter. Mm -hmm. And if spreads are not wider, then the Fed's likely to keep its foot on the brake pretty hard because that says the economy's powering along too strongly and they're going to have to react. Right. So, or else you're playing along too yeah. much. You, yeah. you need to get a little bit more vigilante, don't you? <laughs> what can you do, by the way, in terms of, you know, uh, pivoting your strategy? You can't. Can you go up in quality if you're a 
co-director of High Yield? Sure, yeah, and we've been doing a, a fair amount of that. And I think then the other thing you do is you go into sectors where you have a greater degree of certainty. So, you know, we look, affluent consumers are still spending. Cruise ship companies happen to be doing extremely yeah. well. And actually, if you look at their bookings through 2024, they're, they're solidly booked. Um, you know, we've seen some softness in the airline space, but the cruise ships happen to be different. You know, even if you're looking at something like home builders, you would say to yourself, well, how could home builders be doing well in this kind of environment? Well, right now, you know, secondary or uh, home sales are, are, have dried up because anyone that's got a three and a half percent mortgage or a four percent mortgage isn't going to sell their house and buy something new unless they absolutely have to because they're moving, for example, to a whole other state. So the only game in town right now is buying a new house. And the margins on the home building industry over the last several years have accelerated in a significant way. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. So they've got room to play around and offer extra financing support for the first two or three years. Um, they can bring down the quality or you know, put um, uh, carpeting in instead of hardwood floors. They've got room to maneuver, but the home builders are actually doing quite well. How about in the cable slash telecom space, big, big issuers in the high yield space historically. How are those, are, are you guys have exposure there and, and what do you like or don't like? We do, we do. Uh, you know, the cable sector, you know, if we look back and you look at some of the names in the space, on the equity side over the last you know, couple of years, yeah. they've been under pressure. Yeah, big time. And I think that that's uh, reflecting a couple of things. And one is the competitiveness of, of wireless uh, alternatives. Yep. Um, and then there was cord cutting is obviously going on. Uh, but I think we've seen some some changes in the last several months. But they always particular. pay their interest in principle, though. Yeah, they are always paying their interest in principle. And I think, you know, think about how many of us are still working from home at least part time, maybe not in the office every day of the week. Um, and those people need broadband right, what's access. What's the average office professional in Durham, North Carolina? What are they doing? How many days a week back in the office? I'm going to say we, we're in at least three days a week. At least and I'm going to say that's what most people are doing. See, that's the new normal, man. Yeah, no, I know it's you the new normal. real world, that's, that's what the real people are doing. Yeah. Uh, well, I think bosses are trying to change that, yep. but employees are fighting back. Yeah, we just need a good recession. All right, real quick, what do you expect from your Federal Reserve tomorrow? I think it's going to be a quiet day from the Fed. I think that there's, you know, there's reasons why they may, may go the other way and raise rates, mm. but I, I don't think that that's in the cards right now. I think we're in a holding pattern. All right. Again, looking at the... Uh, the IN function of Bloomberg Index Browser, U.S. mortgage-backed securities, U.S. aggregate, U.S. government credit, U.S. treasury, U.S. universal, all down 2 3 4% uh, year-to-date. The one exception, U.S. corporate high-yield up positive 4.38% return. Uh, but as you mentioned, Ken, on, on the month, down 1.4%, all the bonds. Yeah, if you look at JNK or HYG, they're not doing that great. No. Yeah, you know? yeah, so interesting stuff there. But positive for the yep. year. But yeah. positive for the year. And it, on, on Friday, we'll talk with Joe Mysek talked about the municipal bond market. I'm very much looking forward to that. that. Yeah. Ken Monahan, thank you so much for joining us. Ken Monahan, co-director of High Yield for Amundi U.S., based in Durham, North Carolina. You're listening to The Team. 
Kenzer Live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're right smack in the middle of earnings. Markets digesting them on a daily basis. Got some uh, some more earnings after the close today. AMD, then of course Apple after the close. Uh, we want to go across the pond and see how things over, are over in Europe with earnings, with markets. Where's the performance? Where's the risk? And we do that with one Tim Craighead. He is the director of research and he's also a senior European strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joining us from Queen Victoria Street, the global European global headquarters of Bloomberg, and it is a smoking hot building, just crazy, uh, the building over there. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us the headlines. Just step back 30,000 feet for our listeners and viewers who maybe aren't really up to date on how the European markets have been performing this year. Yeah, well, we, we have been behind uh, the U.S. from the standpoint of, of market performance. We don't have the big tech that's driven the S&P 500 uh, back up over the course of uh, you know, into autumn. Uh, that said, we also don't have the big tech that's been under pressure uh, since the July-August peaks. And so while the, 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 the U.S. has certainly taken a, a pummeling and we've sold off, we have not sold off as much. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the quick synopsis. So we've taken a pummeling, you've sold off, but not as much. Today we learned though that your third quarter uh, showed a contraction in growth and we were growing 5%, buddy. Hey, there you go. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm you know, kidding. It, it, Obviously backward looking mm. isn't what matters. And as Caterpillar, I think proves today, people really care about the outlook. Um, as if we didn't know that already. How is the outlook for European earnings compared to U.S. earnings? So, Matt, I think it's really interesting thinking about the earnings picture. You know, again, the compare and contrast. You know, the U.S. went through a few quarters of earnings contraction while Europe was still gaining. A lot of that earnings contraction in the U.S. was big tech oriented. Um, and what we're feeling now in Europe, and we will see an earnings decline again this quarter, is actually a, a lagging impact of the decline that we've seen in things like energy and metals prices, which you know are, are really big over here, much more so than they are uh, in U.S. markets. The thing I don't think either market has necessarily felt is the full impact of the spike in interest rates that we've had and how that's going to have an impact on consumer and businesses as we go into 2024, um, which does play into an awful lot of the earnings commentary uh, that we're hearing uh, through, the, uh, through the reporting period. Just to give you a couple of numbers, we're about halfway through here in Europe. Um, a little behind where you are, are where you are in the U.S. Um, it sounds okay that we've got about 50% of the companies that have beat earnings expectations, about 35 that have missed. But in fact, that's the worst um, performance from the standpoint of beats versus misses that we've had since the pandemic lows. So I would categorize this as a pretty disappointing earnings season. Hey, Tim, talk to us about valuation. Uh, where, where are you guys over there in, in, in terms of valuation um, right now? Yeah, so you look at the broad European market, we're at 12 and a half times uh, forward earnings. Uh, it's down from, uh, you know, recent highs of, of, of 13-ish clearly far below uh, where the U.S. trades. You can find markets like the German DAX index that's, that's retraced all the way to 10 times forward earnings. Um, wow. And that's with a heavy dose of 
uh, the big German auto companies that are facing increasing pricing competition and EV competition from China. So, you know, it's clearly there, there's a value tilt uh, from the standpoint of an absolute multiple across the European markets. But I'd also say, and it, you know, it's true from a U.S. perspective as well, with interest rates being as high as they are, and they've, they've certainly ratcheted up here um, market by market um, over the course of the autumn, you know, that does take um, a, a toll on what you're willing to pay in terms of market valuation. So what would seem cheap from an absolute level 10 times, 12 times um, a year ago, uh, now isn't quite so cheap on our fair value work because interest rates are simply higher. Yeah, I wonder how important China is to European earnings. And I know they haven't fully penetrated the entire continent, but when I was over there, you know, they had made their way up through Africa and um, <laughs> straight to the tip of Italy. You know, um, is, is, is it a bigger driver of, well, let's say revenue growth, China, than, than it is for U.S. companies? Significantly so. Uh, if the recent analysis we did looking at the stock 600, um, uh, 80 of the 600 have got um, overtly um, easy to define significant contribution. Uh, if you add it up, it's about 450 billion in, in revenue. Uh, these companies aggregate to be about 30% of the European market in terms of index weight. So any way you want to cut it, there's a lot of companies, they're big companies, and it's a lot of revenue. Um, and what we're seeing in the third quarter, quarter maybe no surprise given the faltering, stuttering economic growth in China, is that business is also faltering a bit. They, I already mentioned the, the German autos as a case in point. Uh, contrast that with Stellantis today, which doesn't have so much China exposure, but more US exposure, and it was a little bit better. Um, the luxury good companies um, have talked about uh, weakening China um, economic activity, uh, and there are several others uh, that are that are showing that the, there are signs of, of weakness. Now, two things other to mention on China: this was still an easy comparison for 3Q. Remember, they didn't open back up until October and November last year, so it's really. Uh, the fourth quarter that is going to be a more difficult comparison and on into the first quarter of next year. So if things are still stuttering, that business is going to be more of a challenge. Um, and the other thing, obviously, thinking about 2024, the more pressure there is on the economy, the more likely uh, the, there's going to be fiscal and monetary measures to stimulate the economy, which might all of a sudden turn this around as we look into the back half of next year. And clearly the markets will discount that. Right now, everybody's focused on current weakness. That may be short-lived. Hey, Tim, you, you travel all around the continent, all around Europe, speaking to institutional investors. What do they want to know? I mean, what, what's kind of the common question, top question you get asked? Yeah, you know, Paul, um, I guess a couple things come to mind. I was just in an event last week in, in Frankfurt. And it, at this point, it really is all about the macro outlook and what's going on with um, monetary policy, when is the pivot going to happen, and how much of that pivot does then translate into a reduction in things like 10-year yields, um, because it's not an immediate feed-through. But that's, 
that's crucial because the higher we are, the longer we are on interest rates, the more of an impact there is on business and consumer. And you know, that's, that's a huge pressure point for the 2024 outlook. All right, in suburban London, near your pad, what's a good pint gonna cost me? A good pint when I go for Halloween today, Paul. There we go. <laughs> Thank you All very right. much. It's going to be about seven pounds for a pint. Wow. <laughs> seven pounds. And do you do, you do like a Guinness extra cold or do you have them pull you an actual ale from one of those old school taps? Oh, oh I, 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 like, I like the cask ales. Definitely. See? Old school. <laughs> yeah, delicious. Be- best, no- best thing is a Trappist ale, though, from, from Belgium. That, that's the best beer. That's the best beer. Hey, are you, are you still avoiding the congestion tax in London by riding your bike to the office? I, I, I do. I rode this morning. See, he's one of those people that and I'll rides ride, I'll ride home this afternoon. See? That's and smart. I'm going to avoid the congestion charge in New York by getting a garage on 60th Street. Yeah, we're going to get John Tucker a bike. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to ride my bike <laughs> at the 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That'll Tucker work out really. John the Lincoln Tunnel at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I don't think they allow oh. bikes in the Lincoln Tunnel. All right, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Tim Craighead, he is the uh, director of research over there in London, uh, and he's the senior European strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ton, tons of experience in the equity markets. Morgan Stanley did a little hedge fund work, and then we nabbed him at Bloomberg Intelligence back in the day. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's take a look at these markets. Where do we go from here? We're right smack in the middle of earnings. Um, people starting to think about next year, uh, where to be positioned. Our next guest uh, thinks about that stuff as well. Lucas Tomicki, he's founder, managing partner of LRT Capital Management. Lucas, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us, just let's start off by just getting a sense of how you guys deploy capital to LRT Capital Management. Kind of what's your strategy uh, that you guys deploy? Hey, Matt, thanks for having me. Yeah, to to give you a quick overview, we're really trying to focus on business quality and business resilience. So to us, quality means three things. It means some kind of durable competitive advantage. It means the ability to grow and reinvest capital at high incremental rates of return. And it means management teams that have demonstrated a good, good track record of allocating shareholder capital. All right. So looking at all those variables, what do you like? Well, I think, you know, from the macro perspective, we're likely heading towards an economic slowdown, uh, if not an outright recession. And so today, you know, the theme for me is really investing in resilient companies. So the three companies that, that we like most today are Chemed, which is kind of an odd business. They own two businesses within it. We also love Elevance and Trinet. Here, tell me the kind of what business they're in. I'm looking at the stock here. It's um, it is an eight and a half billion dollar market cap company stock. Stocks up about ten percent year to date. So tell us about the the call there. What do they do, and, and what's the investment call? Yeah, so Chemet is a very odd company in that they own two businesses uh, that are completely unrelated to each other. They own Vitas, which is a hospice care provider, and Roto Rooter, which is a commercial plumbing service. <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't, I don't, I don't see the connection, but but go on. 
<laughs> no, there, 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 there's no connection on the surface, but the real connection is that these are very resilient businesses from a macroeconomic perspective. So Vitas or Vitas provides end of life care effectively. And Medicare, of course, is the largest customer. And so for most people, you know, the statistics say you're spending somewhere between 25 to 30 percent of your entire life's healthcare cost just in the last few months. Um, you know, when you're effectively dying in the hospital, getting very expensive care, very expensive treatment. Um, and that's a very big cost for Medicare. And frankly, um, you know, not everyone uh, sees the benefits of that. So many people opt for hospice care, which is effectively palliative care where you end treatment and you're just receiving medication to manage pain and, and you know, improve your comfort of life. And obviously that saves costs. And frankly, you know, a lot of people see that as a more dignified uh, way to go. And, you know, you know to just just looking at this, Lucas, you just don't see many corporate structures like this anymore. Just pure holding companies, particularly yes. ones that, that own just two businesses. What, what kind of attracted you to, to the company? Well, I followed it for a long time yep. and I don't think I'm the only one. Uh, but what frankly attracted me to the company is up until a few years ago, their website looked like it was straight from the 1990s. <laughs> and that might sound counterintuitive, um, but that, that was to me a very odd signal that this is a company that's really focused on business operations and not, not promoting things. And so generally speaking, we like non-promotional, uh, you know, down to earth kind of management teams. And it's up uh, yeah. 87% over the past five years, up 10% this year, 87% over the past five years, total return. It's done well. Obvi the Roto-Rooter business also, you know, these are two businesses that people are never going to not <laughs> need, if I can split my infinitive just to make the point. Um, and I get that. Do they spin off at some point, one or the other? Do they break into two, do you think? I think that's long been the theme and the thinking. Um, I frankly don't have a problem with the business the way it is. They have opportunities to deploy capital, primarily in the Roto-Rooter business, by buying out franchisees uh, from some of their territories. And then they have opportunities to buy back stock when the shares uh, you know, are trading down. And as you mentioned, the stock is up a little bit uh, this year. But that's largely happened last week on the back of good earnings. Um, so, you know, you're going to have ups and downs, but it's a very resilient business. They've grown about 4% per year in terms of revenue, but they managed to translate that into a 14% EPS growth uh, over the same, you know, last 10 years or so. All right. How about uh, ELV, Elevance Health, another healthcare yeah. name? Yeah, so this is Elevance. Uh, this is the former Anthem insurance business. Um, oh, you know, so Ugh, you may have so heard of it Anthem. They rebranded <laughs> themselves. Um, we love the industry, broadly speaking, the health insurance industry. It's a very consolidated business. There's five players that command the majority of the market, a couple smaller ones. And, you know, this is this company is called a health insurance company, but that's really a misnomer. Only about 10% of what they do is tied to carrying risk. The majority of their business is managed care for the government, managed Medicare, Medicaid, and corporate uh, accounts in which companies self-insure. And so there's very little insurance risk in this space. It's really a health administrator, if you will. And it's so regulated 
that they're frankly not allowed to even, you know, the, the, the amount of profit they're allowed to make is regulated as well. And you see that between all the companies, there's very limited competition and call it GDP plus growth, largely tied to the growth in healthcare costs. I, yeah, we get that one. Let's get to TNET, um, Trinet. Uh, it's also kind of an employee benefits company, right? Yeah, so this is slightly different. It's a very small company, about a five billion market cap. So this is a company that serves small and medium-sized businesses that are looking to get employee benefits. And employee benefits may mean many things, uh, you know, primarily HR, health insurance, disability insurance, etc. But in practice, 90% of what drives their business is health insurance. So what they do is they effectively get a bunch of small uh, employer employers with small employee numbers. They get them together and using their bulk purchasing power, acquire health insurance at better rates, pass the savings on to their customers and keep, of course, a small part of those savings for themselves. Hey, Lucas, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate uh, listening to some of your thoughts there on the stocks that you guys own. Uh, some pretty interesting names, some good performers. Lucas Tomicki, he's a founder and managing partner of LRT Capital Management. One of those folks who's putting money to work, who, as Tom Keen would say, has the courage to be in the market. S&P 500 pretty much unchanged on the day. NASDAQ uh, off about three-tenths of 1%, but at the index level, not a lot happening there. Of course, uh, a lot of uh, movement under the surface there as companies report earnings uh, for the next uh, week or so in size. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Claudia Sam uh, is founder of Som Consulting. She is obviously a former Federal Reserve economist. We'd love to talk to her uh, both here and on Bloomberg Surveillance. She is also the creator of the Som Rule, um, which is a recession indicator and uh, a Denison University graduate. So the Denison, is, you guys are the fighting? I'm from Granville, Ohio. Right. So, you know, for me, that's a, a big deal. And, and it's I a Denison the, fighting? They're the Big Red, I think the is big what red, they're called. Okay. Um, Very good. It's not really a sports thing, but... More of a fun school. It was a fun school. Then yeah. it became a very serious school in the 90s uh, 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 when I was living there, although I did see fish there, which was pretty awesome. <laughs> Claudia joins us um, to talk about the economy, obviously, and not um, her college experience. And, and, and you also wrote a column, Claudia, uh, about Americans basically, you know, trying to answer the question that we're asking every day, which is, why are the numbers so good and Americans feel like the economy is so bad? You know, 5% GDP, um, and yet everyone says a recession's around the corner. How's that going to happen? Right. And to be clear, there's a lot of reasons to be gloomy. Inflation is high. There's a lot of uncertainty. The question is, why are the the extra gloominess? Right. And, and things are as you said, there are a lot of good things. Unemployment is low. It's been low for almost two years, under 4%. Like, that's really good. And if you ask people, how's it going? What kind of news have you heard about the economy? It's as bleak as when you go back to the 1970s and early 80s, right? It's very hard to say, oh, that totally makes sense. Like, there's these bad things happening in the economy. It's that extra kick. And frankly, that's the piece we want to understand because it could really be telling us something bad is around the corner, 
people have been doing that for two years. And then it's like, okay, what else is going on here? Well, we can't underplay the importance of inflation to a normal American who is living paycheck to paycheck anyway. You know, economists love to look at core inflation measures, which take out all the stuff that we spend our paycheck on, right? Food is expensive. Right now, uh, cars are incredibly expensive, plus financing has climbed. Houses are even, not even, you don't even want to talk about because that's not even affordable if you can find one. So is that the, the main problem that Americans have? Inflation has always been something that people would get riled up about, rightly so, right? And the price tags are legitimately higher and they're not coming down. What we've seen this year is, it's slowing down. Inflation is coming down. That is uh, a form of relief and that it could have been a lot worse. And and we there's lots of different pieces of good news that don't come up. We, we found out last week that household net worth for the typical family jumped 37% pre-pandemic to last year. And that was across income groups, demographic groups. You just saw these big increases that matters. Living paycheck to paycheck has been a problem in the U.S. economy for decades. Pe- many people have bigger paychecks, and there's a lot of people who have a little bit of a buffer that have never had it. So it's it's tough to see all those pieces come together and then have this absolutely bleak outlook for the economy. Well, Claudia, how much of it is the uh, income inequality, wealth inequality in this country where you know, the top 10% are doing fine, actually better than fine, but the rest are really struggling with inflation, uh, you know, that, 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 that type of thing. How much is, is that to kind of account for it? This is the rarest of uh, post-recession periods in that we've seen often the bottom do better than they have coming out of any recession. I mean, the top's always going to be fine, right? Wealth inequality, income inequality has been a problem in the United States for decades and decades. We actually saw some compression of that inequality. So it's shrinking some, I mean, you can't hardly see it on the graph, right? It's, it's, you know, it's still big. So that inequality is out there. People tend to focus on what's in front of them, like what they need to do to uh, put food on the table, roof over their head. And and there are some surveys, if you ask people about their own finances, they're more upbeat than when they look out at the economy. And so that's why in my I've written two pieces now at Bloomberg about this extra pessimism, trying to explore what it could be. And often it points to things that go beyond the economy. Because we're asking people big picture about their outlook. And there are other factors at play we went through covid and the war in ukraine is ongoing we've had so much bad news since the pandemic began and then we do have features of how we transmit that bad news out into the public and that's something that's different than the 1970s yeah social media is what you're Mm -hmm. i assume what you're talking about here and i think we all know now that um the way for uh, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg to make money is for people to get angry and hateful on social media. That um, drives engagement and, at the end of the day, the bottom line. So it kind of amplifies everything that's bad, doesn't it? Right. And we've always had the case that bad events happen. The news comes out, it has a bias towards the bad. There's research, news organizations, right? It's more negative. If it bleeds, it leads. leads. Right. So this oh, is geez. not new. 
But what happens is once it gets on platforms, social media platforms, it can spread far and wide and really fast. So it makes this bad news very personal because it can be conveyed by real people and not necessarily, you know, print media or, you know, on the TV. And it absolutely is the case that not only does negative spread faster, it, it gets absorbed. Fa like we're just, there's a human tendency towards the negative. So it's like you put these three factors together, really bad events, news has a bias towards the negative, people love the negative, and then we can spread it really fast. So that's, that's one way to think about it, that you could get this extra kick. But absolutely, we talked about a lot of economic factors that may not be captured, may be different in the past. That could be in there too. So it's really important to kind of pull this apart and figure out what's going on. Because if people are really downbeat, it can create a self-fulfilling prophecy in that they pull back and they get more downbeat. And then before we know it, we're in a recession. So like this is an important question people could be right. I mean, we could really be in a bad place in the next year or two. Well, and a lot of times uh, when we get into a bad place, um, our leaders will hopefully come together and, and pull us out of it. And currently doesn't look like that's a possibility. In this climate in Washington with, um, you know, the, the uh, uh, lack of any kind of bipartisan, in fact, you'll be thrown out as Speaker of the House if you reach across the aisle to make a deal. And um, deficits continue to climb. Now the latest... Uh, the, the latest look is about $2 trillion. Um, does that affect people's outlook? I mean, they say that you say they're doing well at home, um, but they're gloomy about the economy. Could it be because they see, you know, the USA government train kind of running off the tracks? There, in some of these sentiment surveys, they ask people about government economic policy. It probably doesn't surprise anyone that the government scores pretty low and has for some time. It's not clear to me that that's changed dramatically. You see it do move in like debt ceiling moments in the past, like where people get more negative. I, it's more of that reality, like what happens if we were to go into a recession? Uh, typically, there's a saying, we're all Keynesians in a foxhole. Uh, so the money would go out, like the stimulus checks have gone out. And it, But what's what would be problematic is if it were a severe recession, I mean, we will hopefully never see anything like COVID again, is that it wouldn't last real long. And that ends up hurting people at the bottom the most, right? Because they, they probably aren't recovered right away. So a, a government that doesn't have it all together will cause problems for people. I mean, real people are going to suffer in the case of an economy going down. So so where are you right now, Claudia, with, with your economic outlook? It's tough. I, I wrote uh, some on my Substack last week, you know, really like we got to celebrate the wins here. We've seen inflation come down pretty notably, whether you're looking at core or Cheer total up, inflation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tried to like, hey, there's some good stuff out here. Knowing that this wasn't going to amplify through social media, it's kind of hopeless. Uh, but there are plenty of dark clouds on the horizon. Interest rates are up. They've gone up a lot. And you are starting to see it in when you ask businesses with their investment plans uh, and some of the consumer um, credit quality measures, like the delinquencies, they fell during after the pandemic, because again, we gave people so much relief. They're moving up. And we could be moving back to quote unquote normal, where there's just a certain level, 
Or this could be a sign that it's getting, like, people are in a more precarious place. And yet, like, we've been kind of saying that at different times over the last two years, right? The recession is always coming, and it will someday. Like, we don't escape these over the long term. But it's things are have been better than we thought or people were saying or businesses were saying. So we, we could still balance it out, moderate some things, and keep going but it's not it's not what should happen right what should happen is that we go into a recession that's not my base case but i know that's the reality of everything that's lined up all right claudia thanks so much uh, for joining us always appreciate getting a few minutes of your time claudia som founder and independent economist at som consulting thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.